Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest here, San Francisco writer who took the literary, literary world uh, by the short hairs and grabbed them and with her book, Joy Luck Club, and uh, since then, The Kitchen uh, God's Wife, and also her children's books, her television series uh, for children called Sagwa have all come out of this creative person, as well as her performances in the notorious rock and roll band, The Rock Bottom Remainders. Will you please welcome a musician, a writer, and producer, and Bay Area resident, Amy Tan, to West Coast Live. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming in today. You know, I've, I've interviewed authors with babies in their arms, but this first one with uh, a pooch. Oh, well, you have two of them, actually, right here. Yeah. And this one is named? This is Bubba. Hello, Bubba. There he is. Hey, yes. He's happy to be here. <laughs> and, and so when you, when you take him out after the show, does he get larger, and you've just uh, reduced him because of the space? <laughs> yeah, he came, came out of Alice in Wonderland's prop department here. <laughs> very sweet, very beautiful. Does, do you cut his hair? Uh, yeah, I do it myself. It saves me, what, $30 a, a month or something like that. And the, uh, the, the necklace, it, it's, uh, or the, the harness for the leash, has on it uh, semaphore flags and uh, life rings. Is, it, is that an inflatable dog collar that if, if, fell, if, if Bubba falls in the bay? <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, you know, we go sailing sometimes, so that's part of it, and it shows that he's a, a real boy. A sailor, sailor Bubba. Now you you have a, other pets in your life. There's a cat as well. Sagwa is that is that related to the television series in some way? We refer to Sagwa these days as the dearly departed Sagwa. Oh, yeah. oh the, the saga of Sagwa. Well, she she lived to be 21 years old, so she. Is that cat years? Uh, human years, she'd be 100 years old, but she lives on in reruns and uh, you know royalties and all kinds of things. She's she's got her own TV series, which is much more than what. You know, most of us can claim to. So. Well, that's that's good. So, kind of a, a another posthumous uh, literary person. Yeah, she's um, you know the cat with nine lives or twenty nine lives or ninety nine lives, depending on whether PBS renews our contract. <laughs> Have you found as a as a writer uh, that you've had to concern yourself, uh, you know, so more and more with deals? Well, in the beginning, the deals were a little bit difficult to manage. I think the most difficult deals are um, ones having to do with film. Film and television, you know, I, I have this, I realized after making Joy Luck Club that films are really made in lawyers' offices. It, it's a, a minimum of six months of negotiation. Um, and you have to read all the fine print and also make sure that you get all your money up front. That's the basic caveat, you know, money up front. What was it? I, I heard somebody in an entertainment uh, lawyers conference say there the, the three basic rules of of, of uh, entertainment laws: pay me money, pay me lots of money, pay me the money now. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. And that's the gist of every contract. There's this concept above the line and below the line, and you want always want to be above the line. <laughs> Yeah, above the line is, you know, everything that gets paid up, has to get paid up front. Below the line, you, well, you get some below the line money, but you never see it. 
It's kind of invisible Hollywood money. It's like all those movies, you know, that that the things that aren't really true. That's below the line. Yeah. Do you, that's, and so, do you, do you enjoy that process? You know, I actually enjoyed the collaborative process, making the film um, with. But I was really lucky. I, I had some terrific people. I had Wayne Wang as the director and this uh, screenwriter who's phenomenal, Ron Bass. So, um, and then for the children's series, I got to work with George Doherty, who's a conductor as well as a you know person who produces children's programs, and David Wong, as well. So that you know they were fantastic, but. Um, there are some, you know, there's more business to the side of making films and television programs than there is to a novel. A novel, you just sit in your pajamas and work at the computer, and, you know, nobody tells you that you have to take out this scene because it's going to cost X amount of money for the extras, and, you know, you're going to have to take out this line because you're going to have to pay them uh, minimum wage or some, something. The SAG rules come into effect or something like that. I, so when you, write a, when you write a novel and you give a character lines, the character doesn't get residuals as more and more people read the book. Yeah. You, know, you pick it up and read it a second time. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, and nobody tries to rewrite your lines. You know, when you yeah. write a novel, you know, that's it. That's what the characters say is what you tell them to say. In a movie, they always try to make it better. You know? <laughs> Do they put it that way? Uh, you know, now they just say, you know, it feels better for me to say it this way. But actually, you know, in the Joy Luck Club, they, they were, the actors were very reverential. And in fact, you know, they pretty much stuck to the script. And I was, I was kind of surprised because I would have, I would have been happy if they improvised. Um, and, and the screenwriter and Wayne Wang um, were also very respectful of the original work. And they wanted to put in these things that I just said, oh, that's just a bunch of words, you know, this feathers from a thousand li away. And Ron Bass, the screenwriter, said, you, you know, what? You don't get it. That's the meaning of the whole book. You know, that's the meaning of the whole story. If anything, we have to put more and more of it. So when you see the film, you know, it starts with this feather sort of drifting down, and then she talks about the feather, and you see the feather over and over and over again. And so that's how they did the film. You know, and I was really ready to toss a lot of stuff out. Yeah. So do you, do you find that, that uh, I mean, just, uh, other writers sometimes view that creating a movie from a book it makes a necessary travesty. It has to be changed in some way. And now and again, you run into people who will be reverential, and, oh, we can't change a thing. And it may make a, actually a worse movie. Well, you have to change it because it is a different kind of medium. Um, you know, for one thing, the, the film goes by, you know, all these uh, 60 frames a second or something like that. And 24, I think. 24? Is that video or is that high-quality film? Is it? That's high-quality, uh, you know, Lucas. Whatever. It's, whatever. it's faster than you read. You know, when you read... 24 pages a second? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When you read, you know, if you don't get something, you get to go back and, or you, you read something and say, wait a minute, I kind of remember there was something there that was hinted in another page earlier on. You think about it. You can't stop to think in a movie. And so it is a different medium. And the story has to be apparent, has to be, you know, unfolding very quickly. And the moments then that are also on screen are so much mag more magnified than they are on the page. So you have somebody saying something, and in the book, there's a lot of uh, you know, meditation going on, but on the screen, it can look very melodramatic. So you have to be aware of those differences and um, you know, kind of carve out your story differently. But what Wayne and Ron did that was so 
fabulous, I think, um, was to find the essence of the book emotionally and then to write a script, kind of a, a little outline, a prescriptive form of how we would fit all that in within this emotional framework. So that's why I think the film worked, is that we weren't just changing it just to, to have more action or whatever. We were really concerned in the beginning with, a, uh, with the emotional content. Do you find when you're sitting there in your pajamas writing your novel uh, that knowledge of how a movie is made impairs you at all, thinking, well, if this book gets sold to the movies, how will it do this? Do you find a kind of a duality going uh. on? You know, I don't really think about that. Um, I suppose if, you're, you know, you're asking me this now and I'm thinking of this, this book that I'm writing now and it really would not be conducive to a movie. Um, I don't think, uh, a number of my books I don't think would have been, I, I never would have thought Joy Luck Club was movie makeable. I mean, look at 16 stories of, you know, disparate stories of mothers and daughters. So. Um, it doesn't, my fiction doesn't work that way. If I were to think about that, I think I'd be so stymied and I'd start changing things for uh, all the wrong reasons. By the same token, if I started thinking about reviewers or, or um, anybody else reading this and, and what they would have to say, then I would change it again and, and it wouldn't be the kind of truth that I'm looking for. I have to be uh, my own reader and then I have maybe one or two other imagined readers. And they're pretty much my editor, Molly Giles, and uh, my mother. That uh, relationship with your mother working out okay nowadays? <laughs> yeah, she's she's pretty happy. She's in another world right now, but she <laughs> she's you know on my shoulder listening to uh, me talk about her. So she's she's pretty happy, I think. Your, your new book called uh, "The Opposite of Fate" is a collection of essays, pieces that you've you've written over the, the years, including uh, a piece you wrote when you were eight years old. Uh, an essay about the importance of a library in your life. Uh, the motivation for writing that essay in part was a prize. Well, uh, I think it was an assignment from the third grade teacher. You know, we all had to enter this library contest and uh, there was a prize and it was a gold toned with, you know, pearl colored um, transistor radio, which back in, you know, 1960 was really hot stuff. You know, you just, this would be your equivalent of your MP3 player, you know. And so um, I wrote this, but it was not just the importance of libraries. It was important of money to libraries. And I recognized that at the age, the tender age of eight years old. And my father was a minister, and I knew that at the end of a very moving sermon, um, he would he would always ask people for money, you know, and they would pass the plate around and give money. And so at the end of my little essay, I said that I love the library so much, I gave all of my life savings, which was 17 cents, to Santa Rosa Citizen for Santa Rosa Public Library. And that's why I won the contest. You know, I mean, <laughs> the judges recognized in that essay, here was the key to raising money for the library. This little girl gave all of her life savings. Which one of you out there is going to do the same thing, you know? <laughs> Very, very generously minded, and the the opposite of fate is is a, is a large subject. And in several essays, you talk about the course of your life, your family's life, uh, the losses, uh, the gains. Uh, in your own, in the arc of your own life, uh, there was a time when you were uh, in San Jose, 
people were stealing your food, uh, you couldn't eat for three days, and now you're kind of a highly successful writer. Did I write about that? Did no, you didn't oh. write about that. I, <laughs> I, learned, I learned about it through private channels. <laughs> uh, the, the Ouija board? Did you? <laughs> no. and, and, and so in, in the course of that, I mean, your life has seen many changes. Yeah. Uh, so some of it perhaps fate, some of it uh, clearly not, a lot of it self-direction and, and hard work. I um, have this question in my mind about how things happen, and I think everybody thinks about it. It's a basic epistemological question of, of how the world, you know, how the universe works, whether, you know, things are sort of defined by a higher power, whether it's randomness, whether it's chance, whether, what are coincidences, what are accidents, lucky accidents, bad accidents, why did I get a certain disease, or why did I get a certain body type? Um, you know, and but who stops to think about those questions in depth? But neurotic writers, you know, they sit down in their pajamas, and for several hours a day, they they just think about these really inane questions and how it. But are they inane? I mean, they're very internal questions. They're internal, and I think they're very important. I think that we really think about these questions when something terrible or something wonderful has happened in our lives. And we want to know, you know, did I deserve this person that I fell in love with? Or, you know, why did this person leave me? Or why did this person die? Um, and, and based on what you believe, it, it often leads to what you then uh, move toward and also um, what you think of your own uh, purpose in life, you know, what, what that, what the meaning of your life is. Um, so I think it has huge ramifications, you know, and when you see people have very strong beliefs in life and um, what the consequences of those beliefs are, you know, and some of them are a little out there that, you know, can be dangerous when they impose them on other people, then you see how this is a very important question. But I think it's a very personal question that we all ask ourselves and I got to do it in a whole book. And the, the essays include one that uh, the audience is getting here, you're reading on cassette today, required reading and other dangerous subjects. Uh, for people who aren't in the audience and aren't getting this, what, what for you is the essence of required reading? I started getting a lot of people about 10, year, 10 years ago telling me that I was part of a multicultural curriculum. And um, they were you know, saying this with a sense of congratulations to me. And when they said that you know my books had to pass through this very stringent gauntlet of uh, criteria, that it had to provide positive role models, and it had to uh, teach people about Chinese culture, I became very alarmed. Because um, to me, fiction, literature, does not necessarily have some sort of curriculum assigned to it. And that many people find that um, literature by anything but the mainstream is supposed to be somehow educational or have socio-political issues at, 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 you know, attached in this notion of positive role models. So I started giving a speech in which I talked about this issue and why I thought um, where I thought this notion of Asian American literature got started and how it fits into American literature. Um, and why, for example, I don't refer to myself as a writer of, either as a Chinese American writer or a writer of color, for example. The writer of color thing actually is uh, more a thing having to do with the color yellow, you know, which is kind of the same color as jaundice and cowardice and bananas and ping the duck and the low-class Marvin Gardens in Monopoly, you know. Um, so I just, 
I just, you know, have these certain personal prejudices as well about certain things about being a writer. And that, you know, I talk about that in that piece there. And it's kind of funny in parts, but it, it really does seriously say what I believe about American literature. There was a story that, uh, that you told about your mother and her... Uh, her reluctance to talk to you about her upbringing in China. I mean, for many years she kept her life hidden from you and had kind of a secret past. But you needed information from her for research, and you would not, she could not, she would not talk to you. And you figured out finally a way to unobtrusively tape her, but you asked her a specific question uh, about her life that sort of opened up her memory. And I found that a very interesting process, both as a, as a writer and somebody who interviews people about how you get somebody to talk about something. Do you remember the question? You know, I don't remember any specific questions, except that I would ask her, as she would talk, she would be very shy. And then she would say, well, um, one day I went to the market. And I'd say, what did you buy there? You know, I would ask for just the small. What were the price of mushrooms? What were the price of mushrooms? Because um, what I wanted her to do was what we do in stories, is to look at the details. And the details are what immerse you into the story and make you there in that place. And so I continue to ask these very detail-oriented oriented, but emotionally inconsequential questions. And then pretty soon she was there in her memory, and I have the, the videotape going, and she would be acting out exactly what was happening th that day. The argument with the street merchant. Yeah, the argument with the, you know, arguing about the prices, but then later arguing with her husband as he walked in the door with a gun and made her and her friends kowtow and, you know, basically knock their heads to the floor, and then finding out later it was a joke. Um, you know, her outrage, her sense of fear initially, and her determination to leave this man. You know, so it was all there. And I never, she would have told it to me in the, in the blandest of terms, like, oh, that bad man, he treat me so mean, you know. And that's all I would have known. But by having her enter the scene again in a story, I was able to see, see what had happened, but be there with her. The, uh, and that process, uh, I would think, also extends to your writing, that in the process of finding out what it is a character is going to be, there's a detail in the life, and that detail draws you into the character's creation. Yeah, it could be the way that they say something, there could be little personal tics, or it could be, um, uh, you know, something that is so particular that it makes people believe that everything else about the character is absolutely real, that these people are real. Um, I think that it is the highest compliment you know, to a writer when people assume that everything is true. For example, a lot of people assumed that I was a chess player because I had written a story about a girl who is not quite a grand chess master, but you know, pretty good. She's winning all these championships and everything. And it describes in the story the moves that she makes and she has given them particular names. Well, I don't play chess. I did find a book on chess, I read some strategies, I gave them different names, I looked at them emotionally on how it resonated with the girl's life. And I think there were other little details in there about her, her character, her mother, where she lived, the sound of three door locks unclicking. You know, it's all those little details that get people to believe that um, this actually happened, these people are real. And what is it about readers who want to know about a novel, a work of fiction, that 
this must have happened to you, that it is in fact, uh, you know, uh, verite. Well, part of it is the readers themselves. The readers enter into the story and the book becomes their own story. They find details that resonate with them or emotions that are true to them. And they say, well, it's true for me. It must have happened to this person as well. Um, and I think that's part of it. There's a quality about uh, fiction that is both observation and universal truth, that you read about things that heighten your sense of what you notice in the world, not just the details of, say, botany or um, you know, electrical wires running across a floor, but um, human nature. And so you read about that and you become more observant, but then you realize, yes, I have in some way noticed that myself. I've just never articulated it. The book is called The Opposite of Fate, and it's a collection of essays that Amy Tan has written over the years that speak to what went on in her life, and as a fan of her writing, you would be very interested to see some of the workings that go on in her mind. Also, other essays and thoughts on issues of the time required reading, and what it is to donate your life savings to a public library at the age of eight. It's published by Putnam. A Book of Musings by Amy Tan. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Seth. Thank you. And Bubba, thanks to you, too. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.